there, I'm Vicki Hull, and this is The Crafters Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making your next handmade thing. Or frankly, while you're taking care of the kids, typing on your computer, washing dishes, whatever it is that you may be doing that prevents you from reading a book in the traditional manner, they've got you covered. And not only have they ha- do they have you covered, they're taking the extra step, going the extra distance by offering you a free download of Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. Johanna has woven together a magical tale around her gorgeous illustrations, so it's both an audio and artistic experience. You can listen to it, you know, wherever you are, and then check out the illustrations later. It's great for all ages, so you can check it out when you're with the kids, in the car, wherever, um, and, and just really enjoy. So go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter to download it, and while you're there, check out all of their other great titles for your listening pleasure. This week on the show is sustainable craft expert Katrina Rodaba, whose book Mending Matters, Stitch, Patch, and Repair Your Favorite Denim and More sold out of its first printing, and we are now awaiting with bated breath the second printing. Katrina and I talked about humans' obligation to mindfulness about consumption of clothing, the rise of popularity of the slow fashion philosophy, and what she's learned over the past six years during her fast from fast fashion. I'm a fan of her book. I've started working on a couple of mending matters myself. Um, and then also, as just a total side note, her foreword, the foreword in the book, was written by slow fashion activist Natalie Channon, whom I also interviewed for this podcast, but back in 2016. So you can check that out, too, if you go back to the archives. Anyways, I really enjoyed um, speaking with Katrina and hearing her perspective during our chat. So let's hear it now. Katrina wrote about thank you so much for being on Craftish. Thank you for having me. I want to start out. Well, first of all, congratulations on your gorgeous, gorgeous book, Mending Matters. I am I'm a huge fan of it. And I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the zeitgeist around it. But I wonder if we could start sort of really rudimentary. Um, and if you would just take a moment to explain what slow fashion is. Mm, goodness. Okay. I'll try. <laughs> um, I think slow fashion is really different for everyone. And I like to think of it as really a lifestyle choice um, and that that lifestyle would reflect the person, you know, engaged with it. But I think at its sort of most fundamental, slow fashion is really just about slowing down your fashion consumption. Um, and, you know, that might just mean having maybe you're just going to put a sort of fast on for a little while, right? You're going to reduce the number of clothing that you purchase for a month or for a year, or maybe not at all. Um, Or maybe you're going to buy from ethical brands, shop recycled, start mending what you already own. I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it, but I think really at its like basic, basic um, definition, it's just about slowing down consumption. You said, uh, you say on your website that there was sort of a pinnacle moment for you when you really sort of made a a decision that mending and the slow fashion philosophy was going to be the cornerstone of of you as a person. Will you talk a little bit about that? Um, uh, this was, uh, I'm referring to the factory fire in Dhaka, Bangladesh. 
Yeah. Um, so in April 2013, the Rana Plaza garment factory collapsed. It was a structural failure and the building collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and over 1,100 people were killed. And at the time, I was working on my first book, which was Upcycled uh, Paper Toys for Kids. And I had a little one. He was a year and a half old. Um, and I was going about my other work. You know, I really had no intention of turning my studio practice towards slow fashion. But the factory collapse happened, and it was big news for a couple of weeks, and then it kind of went away. And I was actually an environmental studies major in college and undergrad. And so it was that going away part that was kind of like a red flag for me as a young, younger activist. You know, like, wait a minute, what happened? Why aren't we hearing about this anymore? Why aren't we hearing about this news anymore? Um, so I started doing some research on um, fashion and and garment factories. And I came across Elizabeth Klein's book, Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion. Um, and that was really a game changer. And I had been a fan of Natalie Channon um, and Alabama Channon's work for a long time, but I came across some of her blog posts about the need for slow design and slow fashion during fashion week. And I was really inspired that she was sort of calling out her peers in this pinnacle moment of, of fashion week in New York. Right. Um, so those three things really formed the basis for me of turning towards slow fashion. And I was going to do a fast for just a year. I wasn't going to buy any new clothing. And I called it Make Thrift Mend. And I focused on secondhand clothing and mending and um, making simple garments. And now it's been five and a half years later. And that's kind of still what I'm doing. So it was sort of those, um, you know, those three influences coming together, making a one-year project that just turned my whole studio practice in a new direction. I think part of what was shocking about the factory burning down other than the obvious and and that people, uh, that people just sort of stopped talking about it was that, well, one, I think that they weren't American. So I think just sort of the statement on what that means about our, in this country, especially our global stance. Um, But two, I, I wonder if fashion is just another spoke to the, you know, 24 hours news cycle of horrors <laughs> we hear at all mm. times. And that, yeah. and that, you know, that, that fire, 1100 people being killed was impactful until the next thing was impactful. Yeah, I think somewhat, I mean, with the Rana Faza, uh, the factory collapsed. There's actually a structural failure, one of the biggest structural failures of modern history. Um, and I think one of the challenging things with that is that uh, they knew the building wasn't super safe. And some of the garment workers had actually started protesting going inside mm-hmm. and were forced to go inside. Um, and I think an- another thing that happened is, you know, so much of the labor is outsourced several times. So the person who owns the building isn't the person who's, you know, contracting the labor, isn't the designer who's contracted the labor in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's sort of became this pointing match and it was just a big question around well who is responsible you know when 1100 people are dead um and so i think that in a lot of ways yeah it is kind of you know we're kind of have this barrage of of news and horrific things happening all the time around the world but i think for fashion for a lot of us working in slow fashion it was really this moment where i feel like if we'd had an interest in what was going on with fashion, it was so huge that you couldn't look away. You know, it was just, it was so tragic. Um, and I think it was really illuminating to, to what 
was becoming, you know, maybe a, sta- a standard or a substandard um, in factory fashion in, in Bangladesh. And from there, you know, then you kind of have a lot of movements like Fashion Revolution and um, a lot of folks who kind of came out on the activist side to draw attention to what was going on. I think that sort of standards, low standards out of country and factories is, does not come to a shock as any to anyone. But what I've found when talking to retailers or distributors is that it's really difficult to tell what actually is happening in the factories because mm. when executives go down to visit and look, they may be presented with a picture that is not in total. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's uh, it's it's so difficult as a as somebody that's bringing items into this country to know when you are actually, you know, helping another community financially by by creating these jobs because there's a lot of amazing co-ops in India that, you know, that great companies out here work with to give skills to you know, communities, but then there are these these horrors. And it's a whole other level, I think, of responsibility and investigation that needs to be done on a grander scale that's maybe not, I, I think that what you do makes it so accessible for us as individuals, but I think some of the onus really does need to go, because not everybody will or can take the time to identify and and fix the problem themselves but i think there's some responsibility with the companies behind some of these brands yeah i mean i think that's a lot of what's been going on you know with fashion revolution started the uh, who made my clothes campaign online and you had people just showing the labels of their clothes and sort of calling out the um the brands and saying who made this like what are actually who are actually the hands that touched this garment before I bought it. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot that needs to happen on an institutional and industry level, for sure. Um, but I also see a lot of hope in small brands and in small ethical brands that are trying to be as transparent as possible in terms of where their factories are located, how much people are paid, what kind of fibers they're using, um, you know, even their shipping materials. I think a lot of a lot of brands are, are really trying to be as transparent as, as they possibly can to say, hey, you know, this is how I'm trying to, to do my best here with ethics and, and with materials. Um, so, yeah. A couple years ago, I think, I had Natalie Channon on this show, and one of the quotes that we talked about was one from, I guess, an interview she had done in the LA Times, and she said something to the effect um, that anyone who tries you know, to make even the most basic of garment, well, we'll gain an understanding of really what it takes to make a finished product. And and mm-hmm. that um, that adds value to every single dress and t-shirt and pair of pants in your drawer. And I wonder if as you were writing this book, or even in the five and a half years of the journey towards this book, if you're if the way that you valued clothing changed at all over the course of that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely agree with Natalie. I think the more you understand handcraft and the more you understand, you know, garment construction of why a French seam is, you know, such a beautiful seam, things like that. Um, 
I think value is really personal though, right? Like value can be in the handwork. It can be in the skill. Um, it can be in the fibers being used. It can be in how much it costs. It can be in where it came from. It can be in who gave it to you. Um, one of the things they talk about in, in sustainable fashion is emotional attachment and how can you create emotional attachment with a garment before the person even purchases it. And the wedding dress is like the, the perfect example, right? The wedding dress is pure emotional attachment. You wear it once and then Typically, it might stay in your closet, or maybe you'll hand it down. Um, maybe some people eventually will cast it off, but it stays around for a long time. Um, so I think for me, the value really became, because I had this one-year fast that I wasn't going to buy new clothing for a year, um, and I did buy secondhand clothing, but I really wanted to look at what I already had. I wanted to press pause and, and do this research around ethical fashion and just sort of better assess my closet, because I already had plenty of clothes. And I think... One thing that I realized is the value in, in repair, the value in being able to mend my favorite jeans or, um, you know, having a top that maybe got discolored in the laundry and being able to recolor it with plant dyes. And the value in that for me was huge, but seeing how I had to start purchasing differently in order to use plant dyes, the garments have to be natural materials. So cotton, silk, linen, hemp, wool. Mm -hmm. So if you start buying, right, 100% biodegradables to begin with, even secondhand, then they have the opportunity to be re-dyed and over-dyed with, with natural dyes once it's time, you know, for the color to change or if it gets a stain. So speak a little more about what we as consumers should be looking for when we're, when we're thrifting, when we're going through labels, because obviously if you're at a Goodwill, they're not, you know, categorized by fiber. So um, educate us a little bit on, on, you know, what, what we should nab when we see it? Well, I think that's really a personal question. I mean, I think one of the challenges I see in slow fashion um, is that I want it to keep getting wider and wider. I want it to keep meeting a more and more diverse audience in terms of economics, in terms of lifestyle, profession, climate, culture. Um, fashion is really important for expression, right? And and that's not going to change. Um, so for me personally, when I go into a thrift store or I'm looking for something secondhand, for me, the materials are paramount because that's the only way that I can use them for natural dyes. <clears throat> and there's always some exceptions, right? Like I still have elastic bands in my clothing, you know, and things mm -hmm. like that. I mean, there's certain synthetics that are just aren't going to go away. Um, but yeah, I look for natural fibers and um, certain things you start to get really good at, like identifying silk versus a, a silky fiber, mm -hmm. right? A synthetic fiber um, versus silk. And I always say silk has a little bit of like tack to it. Yeah. And that's because it's an animal fiber, right? So you can feel a little bit of that tack in the fiber itself. Um, linen, there's a lot of great linen out there from like the 80s and 90s, um, you know, pretty classic cuts and things like that. Even if it's a light color, light green, light yellow, um, it can be over dyed with a darker dye. And then for repair work, um, just for me, just looking for denim that's 100% cotton or higher percentage of cotton, and it's a mid to heavier weight denim um, because it's just easier to repair and it just has more longevity because the elastic uh, the elastic threads aren't going to break in the same way that they will um, in a high blend. Um, but you know, that's to say, it also depends on the person shopping and what they like to wear and their body type and you know their budget and all those things. Absolutely, and just buying secondhand in general, right there, you've taken the first step. Even if you're buying you know, a highly flammable, like amazing 1970s polyester moo moo. That's not yeah. going, that's not going into a landfill. So you're already winning. Totally. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, just I think one things that we kind of get can one of the things we kind of get confused about with thrift stores, we have this idea. A lot of a lot of Americans, Westerners, have this idea that oh, I have these garments that somebody else would benefit from, right? I have these garments that I no longer I no longer want, but I can take them to the goodwill, and somebody who needs them will enjoy them. And on the one hand, maybe if the garments are in really good condition, if they're you know fashionable clothing, yeah, they have a pretty good chance of being re. re- repurchased. But if the garments are damaged, if the garments are really no longer fashionable, um, missing buttons, tears, broken zippers, they can't be sold. And so already the things that we're donating, so many of them are damaged that they can't go on the floor. And then thrift stores are basic retail. So it's about supply and demand. And they have so much more supply typically than demand. I'm talking about like your general, you know, kind of thrift stores, not like a curated vintage shop. Um, And so then there's so much demand. So the clothes can typically only stay on the floor 30, 45 or 60 days. And after that, they have to go somewhere else. So and then where do they go? They get bailed, industrial bailers. Um, they might get shredded and used in, you know, some kind of batting or stuffing for pillows, that kind of thing. Um, they might get shipped overseas into an uh, under, oftentimes under-resourced country, and then it disrupts any kind of local textile uh, skills and, and traditions, um, and also disrupts the local secondhand market. Or it might get stored in a warehouse until there's a need for it. It might get incinerated and it might go to landfill. So I think just the idea around consumption itself is really where we need to start. Like what comes into our homes and do we love it and do we need it? And can we wear it for X amount of years, five years, I try to say. Um, and if we could just you know, think about that, that mindfulness when it comes into our home, can we repair it? Will we repair it? That sort of thing. Then it just slows the whole cycle down. And then we're not, you know, casting off garments and purchasing garments at, at such an alarming rate. It's a big, especially now, it's a big turn to take if you're used to, and, and I'll be honest, I'm on camera at least a couple times a week. Having different clothing at all time is just part of what I do. And But it's a, it's a shift that I've been trying to make on where how I can reaccessorize and how I how I can be a little bit more mindful because I you know participate in the throwaway tops and that's not something that I really want to continue doing but when you think about that big turn in your book um, you say simply slow the journey down and I wonder if you could just, for those of us that are always going 150 miles per hour, and I know I'm not the only one who's a mother and a, and has a career and, and, and a wife and all of the other things, where's a good starting point? Yeah, I get it. I mean, I have two little kids and, you know, my husband and I are, are renovating a 200-year-old farmhouse and we both have careers and life is busy, you know, and I think for many of us, we're working at a very fast pace. I think with fashion... Um, I always say just start with the next garment, just that very next garment, just that very next purchase, just one. Um, because I think it's, it is about incorporating, 
the mindfulness incorporating this new way of thinking into your life. And that has to be integrated. And that's why I really can never have like a one size fits all prescription, right? Um, because if you have someone who has to dress a certain way for work and they have a certain type of meeting, then, you know, the fibers and the clothing that's available in that culture is going to be different than somebody who maybe works from home. Um, you know, and, and there's several other types of examples, but I always say, if we could just start with that next garment, just even with, do I love it? Do I need it? I think just those two questions are huge. Um, and then you start to think maybe not, right? Maybe I don't really love it. Maybe I just kind of like it, or maybe I don't really need it. I just want something new. Um, and then I think there's a lot of work we can do around that in our own closets, you know, with what we already have. So in your book, Mending Matters, you show several different ways to mend basic clothing that have varying degrees of damage to them. And you purposefully make the mending visible and shine, Mm -hmm. which is probably my favorite thing about it because they become art pieces. If for folks out there that maybe are not sewists, Mm-hmm. and definitely not artists. What is the most approachable way to start mending? So there's high contrast mending and there's low contrast mending. And low contrast mending is really more traditional, right? You try to match the weave of the of the garment with your mending and your darning. Um, and so some of the projects in the book are low contrast. And I always say those happen in like... Um, not not really ideal places, right? Like right. the seat of your pants or like the upper thighs in women's jeans, um, maybe your armpits, things like that. Um, so in those cases, I usually just try to, some of the basics of mending to match the garment, the patch and the thread in terms of color and in terms of fiber and weight. So if you have a heavyweight denim, a dark heavyweight denim, you'd use a dark patch and a dark thread. Right? And where and are a, you? Where heavyweight. are you finding these patches? Are these coming from other clothes, or is there? Are you yeah, buying patches? Times. If there's something particular I want to match, um, then I'll go to the thrift store and I'll find a match, particularly with denim, because there's so much denim in the thrift store that you have a pretty good chance of matching the color and maybe even the weight. Um, you know, I also have the benefit of teaching classes. So I have a bunch of scraps, you know, from my classes and from my kits and things like that. Um but yeah, usually you just, with denim, you can certainly find other denim or people give me denim. My mom started giving me her cast off jeans and I'll cut them into patches, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so, but with linens or silks or um, other cottons, like a quilting weight cotton or something like that, you'd want to match the weight and the fiber. So you might go to a thrift store, you might go to a fabric store, you know, whatever you have available. Um, but I still think the easiest way, so that's about low contrast and high contrast, but the easiest way is still just to put a patch on it, right? If you have a tear in the knee or something like that, put a patch over it, do some simple stitching and get the garment back into rotation. I think with denim, it lends itself really, it it lends itself really well to the high contrast visible mending because it's usually weekend wear. It's usually casual wear. And so a lot of times we can add that embroidery and add that embellishment because it's something that's just, you know, sort of being worn on the weekends or being worn in casual environments anyway. Um, so I always think a pair of jeans is the best place to start, and then you can kind of decide how much stitching and, and uh, patching you want to add. When What is the difference for you between 
approaching something from a practical matter, so a garment that needs, let's say, has a hole in the knee, mm-hmm. um, to approaching it in an artful manner where maybe it is, you know, jauntily askew on the lower <laughs> hem of a blouse and you've chosen to go high contrast is the outcome for you different? Are you are you approaching one practically? Are you are you intentionally creating art pieces, or do you just let the garment speak to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination. The turning point for me in mending was really when I realized that I could use my background in fiber arts and I could use my background in the arts to repair my clothing. That was really my light bulb moment when I thought, oh my gosh, I can think about with very basic stitches. I mean, there's only three stitches in my book. They're the most basic stitches in my opinion. So it's not about having a high level of like being, you know, an embroiderist or that sort of thing. But with really basic stitches, you can look at the basic elements of design, line, contrast, scale, color, texture. And you can make these choices by just considering your design elements, right? So just color, just staying with a blue and white color palette, just considering the, sc- the, the scale of the patch. You know, do I want it to be really oversized? Do I want to use several smaller patches? Um, the line, is my stitching going horizontal or vertical or both? These things give us enough elements to make an infinite number of, of men's, right? An infinite number of outcomes. Um, so I think for me, it's really a combination of, well, where is it, right? Like, where is the repair? If it's someplace I want to be really visible or not, like a knee is a great place. An elbow is a great place, right? For a high contrast repair. Um, my jeans often tear right in the upper thighs and then they tear at the knees and they tear at the back pocket. So I might do lower contrast mend in the upper thigh, high contrast mend on the knee and a high contrast mend on the back pocket. Um, but I think it really depends, you know, on the garment. I don't usually take custom work, but I have done some uh, work, particularly for the book. The models were all um, local friends, contacts, colleagues of mine. And so I mended some of their clothing so they could wear it for the book. Um, and, you know, some of the clothing, they didn't want a high contrast mend. And so, you know, that made it an easier decision. Um, but I first like to focus on the utility of the repair to make sure that the repair is going to hold and then think about the design elements. Is mending creative for you? Yeah, it is. Um, You know, I think using, again, those basic stitches. So I did my undergrad in environmental studies, and then I went to graduate school for creative writing. Um, Poetry and book arts was my focus. And it was really my book arts professor that um, encouraged me to look at my work over a couple of decades as, as fiber art and to start bringing more fiber into my book arts work. But it was some of those very basic book binding stitches that I originally started applying, you know, to, to repair work, to my mending, to my garments. Um, so it is artful and it is creative, but it's also very functional. I think in that way, you know, it probably falls more into the design camp because they're garments that I plan on wearing over and over and over again. Um, but yeah, it is, it is certainly creative. You're an artist, as we've talked about, a writer, as we've talked about, crafter, as we talked about. Do, do those three vehicles of self-expression fill the same creative space within? Do they, do they fill different cups or is it all, does it all feel the same creatively to you as just an extension? You mean with mending or you mean in general? In general. Or either. You do you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a good question. I think for me, writing 
has been in my life since I was a young child. Um, and I think writing is often a way to organize my thoughts. And it is a form of expression, but it's also a way to organize my thinking and my research and my reading. Um, and now with my work, right, that might be an Instagram post, that might be a newsletter, that might be a book or an article. Um, but at some point it was poetry, you know, which was pure self-expression. I think with the crafting and the design work, I always wanted a balance between my head and my hands. So I think of the writing as a sort of creativity that happens all in my head. But with the handwork, with the stitching or the dyeing or um, some of the fiber work, it's so visceral. And... Um, you know, you have to sort of shift the way that you're thinking, the way that you're working when you're working with your hands. And you kind of have to let your hands take over, especially once, you, you know, once you've learned the techniques and, and sort of know the tools. Um, so I find that it's definitely both about creative expression, but it's physically in different places, right? Um, and for me, I, I've always felt like both is really important. Your Instagram feed is gorgeous it just everything goes goes with each other and I wonder if once you know if over the course of you you know fully embracing slow fashion if the the palette of your closet changed at all definitely it did and that's funny that's something I've actually been thinking about recently so each year at the start of the year I started my fast in August and each year in August I kind of reset the parameters for the year going forward uh, and oftentimes I've lifted the parameters. So in the beginning, I wasn't buying any new clothing at all. And then it was locally made or handmade the second year, the third year, factory made if it was ethical or organic. The fourth year, I turned back to my tools and materials. The fifth year to making garments as sustainable as I can. And this year I've been thinking, because this is the start of the sixth year, I've been thinking about that. And I looked at my closet and noticed that it was getting really um, basic. The colors, not, not the clothing, blues, grays, whites, blacks. And I also moved from California to New York, so I feel like that's a, a pretty natural um, just shift, you know, going from one climate to the other and one culture to the other. Um, but I don't want to get to the place where it's purely practical. As much as I want it to be mindful and ethical and feel really integrated to my life as an environmentalist, it's still fun, right? Like, it still has to be creative. It still has to feel fun and expressive. So I've just started thinking about adding more color back in and with the plant dyes too, you know, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, what people are doing with marigold right now and matter root and, um, do you know, Rachel Denbow? I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. do. Yeah. I was going to say smile and wave. Yeah. Uh, she like, she is just, she blows my mind with the colors that she's able to achieve and, um, there's so many beautiful things that you can do with natural dyes that are truly saturated color. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm probably not going to wear, I love working with goldenrod. It also, like marigold, gives a really beautiful, like, rich yellow, deep golden yellow. I'm probably not going to wear a floor-length, deep yellow dress. Maybe somebody would. You but can I send it to me. <laughs> I can send it to you, right? Totally. But I realize, but I will wear a sweater. I have a goldenrod dyed cardigan that I wear all the time. Sure. Or a scarf, right? Or things like that, or skirt. Um, so that's, I think, the more time I spend with my wardrobe and the more I really understand my own style and aesthetic, then I can look at that and say, okay, yeah, I, I just pulled a scarf out of my closet yesterday um, to put through the wash because I was like, that's a really light pink and I'd like it to be a darker pink. That'd be great for avocado pits, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. So then I can start sort of looking at that because I also, I'll buy a garment and try to think, Will I wear this for five years? And what that really does is it knocks out a lot of just th those really fast-paced trends, right? Um, but I also, 
am aware enough to know that I don't really know what I'll want to wear in five years, right? Some things I can guess and take a pretty good guess. So I think there always needs to be a little room for expression and for creativity and, and for play in terms of you know how we're getting dressed. You referenced that one of the parameters that had changed for you was being able to buy from factories as long as they were ethical. How does one find out, really find out, that Mm -hmm. a factory is ethical before they purchase from the company using them? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's really, I think it's one of the um, stopping points for a lot of people, right? Yeah. I think think most people want to align their uh, consumer purchases with their ethics. I think most people really do. Um, But how do you go about that, right? Or, Or how do you find that? I find a lot of times the company, they give themselves away. You just go to their website and you just look for some sort of statement or policy on their ethics and on their um, commitment to the environment. And if it's something that's really a priority for them, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be really easy to find. Is there not some kind of seal, like ethical factory seal of approval type thing? There's fair trade. Um, You know, there's a fair Mm -hmm. trade seal and there's organic cotton seal and things like that. But I think so much of it is really being created right now. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the exciting part, too. Sure, you have some brands, of course, that have been ahead of the curve for 10, 20 years. Um, But for the most part, again, with that factory collapse happening just five years ago, there's so many more ethical um, and environmentally minded products available now than when I started my fast. I mean, it's tremendous. And I, I think that's really hopeful. So I always just go to the website and oftentimes I find if they are making it a priority, they make it a priority to tell me as a consumer. Um, and, and then it's pretty easy to find. And nobody's perfect, but they'll let you know what they're working on and how they're doing it. You use a lot of denim um, in your wardrobe and in your book, Mending Matters. And I, I think it's interesting to spend uh, for people to hear a little bit about what goes into denim in the first place. I Earlier in the season, I interviewed a woman named Avery Truffleman, and she's the producer and host of a podcast within a podcast, and it's called Articles of Interest, and it's just a six-part series on the history of certain aspects of fashion. Mm. And one of them focused on denim, and it was mm-hmm. fascinating to hear the amount of work that has to be done to get raw denim to a place where a consumer would actually wear it is not all that sustainable in and of itself. You mean like the shredding and the distressing? and the, then- well, Just even the amount of times that it has to be washed before it's you know, it's got enough give to wear. Um, yes, but yes, absolutely, the, the distressing. And so that for me, that makes it even more important to like hold on to those jeans that you love and mend them yeah. and create them because we're not going to stop wearing jeans. I mean, that's we are not. No, it's the counterpoint of our culture. <laughs> totally, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, denim, cotton in general, um, conventional cotton is really hard on the environment. It takes a lot of pesticides, a lot of irrigation. Um, so just making the switch to organic cotton is huge. Um, but yeah, denim is it's it's a it's a tricky fiber. Um, and the way that we like our denim, as you mentioned, right, is acid washed at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, the the distressing, the shredding, that sort of having that worn in feel before it's left the store um, is something that we're really attracted to. 
you know, I think that there's, there is this like micro movement around raw denim, um, and around getting the fibers less distressed or not distressed at all with a higher cotton percentage. So hundred percent cotton, 99% cotton, that kind of thing. Um, but I think one of the things I love about denim is just like you said, it's so relatable. It's so, um, it's so widespread in terms of who wears it, right? And how they wear it and when they wear it. And of course you have a hierarchy of denim, you know, from a $10 pair of jeans to a $600 pair of jeans or something like that, of course. But I think it's really interesting to me that folks from various economic backgrounds, various professional backgrounds, um, are wearing denim. And as Americans, it's like one of our fibers, right? It's like one of the the fibers that we associate with. And again, like I mentioned in that weekend wear, that casual wear, that leisure wear, um, being denim. And so I am in this funny place with most of my denim where my fast started five years ago. So in some ways I'm locked in to the denim trends of five years ago, um, which is like the low waist and the peg leg. Um, (laughs) that description was unfortunate. (laughs) Totally, right? <laughs> Whereas now it's all about the high waist and the wider leg. Um, so some of that, it's like, I think with something like a tunic or a sweat a cardigan, there's some things that you can probably like outlive the trend, but there are certain things like denim, the trend is every couple of years. Yeah. And it's really simple. It's really just where that waistline hits and how wide the pant leg is because denim's a pretty basic design, right? Jeans are, or rather jeans are a pretty basic design. Of course, that's not to say some designers are doing awesome things with jeans, but you know what I mean? Like the, mm. the mainstream jean has to either be a little bit shorter, a little bit wider at the bottom, a little lower, a little higher. Um, so, but one thing, once I do find that new pair of ethical jeans that I'm going to buy new, which I haven't found yet, I've been looking for a while now, I'll try to buy it in a way that might be a little less, uh, you know, just a little less subjected to trends. Um, but yeah, yeah. Denim, denim is the fiber that I relate with deeply. I say I've been wearing, uh, sweaters and boots and jeans for, you know, since I was like 10. So, <laughs> or maybe, maybe 15. Denim um, is your spirit yeah. fabric. It's one of my spirit <laughs> fabrics. It really is. <laughs> was there, was there any loss that you felt from getting away from faster fashion? Like, was there any, did you have to mourn any particular like fiber or piece or immediately immediacy of receipt or, or, or any, any aspect? You know, I think it was really more behavioral. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, before I had my son and, and just before I started my fast, I've been working in an art gallery in downtown San Francisco. And on my lunch hour, I would just go browse, right? I would go browse different sale racks, different shops, um, you know, go to the uh, little lunch area next door. And, you know, I just happened to walk by a couple of shops, that sort of thing. So it was really, I, my mom was living in New York. She'd come visit and we'd go shopping, right? We'd go to lunch and we'd go browsing. And so it was more that behavioral stuff that had to switch where going on your lunch hour, going on a break and not shopping, but just taking a walk. Or if you need to browse, go to the bookstore, right? Um, are those sorts of things. And then when my mom would come to visit, just going out to lunch, going to the park, those kinds of things. It was really more behavioral. Because I was buying secondhand and because of the time I was living in the Bay Area, which has a tremendous secondhand and consignment market, mm-hmm. I could still find a lot of things secondhand. Um, now I live in a very rural area in upstate New York, and I don't have that consignment market so much. A little bit, I do, but not to the same extent. Um, so I would say more locational, that it's been limited. 
What is one thing that you hope people take away from Mending Matters and your work to spread the slow fashion movement? Well, I think from the book, the one thing I want people to take away from the book is just that they can mend their clothes. And again, that was really intentional for me to just use the three basic stitches and then lean heavy into into the design. Um, because I say, if you can tie your shoes, I can teach you to mend. Like it's actually more difficult to tie your shoelaces than it is for some of the stitches. You're just used to tying your shoelaces, right? You've been doing it for a long, long time. Unless you're a um, kid now. Yeah, it's true. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Everything's Velcro, Velcro, everything. (laughs) That's true. So they would be harder for them. Um, You're going to have to come up with a new. (laughs) I know, I would. So for for the old folks, it's easier. For for we old folks like myself. Um, although surprising, my seven-year-old is like a pretty good stitcher. I don't, he can't tie his shoes, but he's a pretty good stitcher. That's great. Um, So yeah, I think that, you know, I just want people to feel access. I just want them to feel permission. I want them to know that if it's a fair pair of jeans, if it's a favorite pair of jeans and it's damaged or broken, it still has life left Mm -hmm. in it and they can do some, you know, basic patching and mending and they can wear them again. And with that act, it's like that the act of just focusing on the next garment. Do I love it? Do I need it? When you just mend one pair of jeans, there's so much self-acceptance that has to go into the way that you mend it, right? Just like accepting that your stitches look a certain way or accepting that, you know, your patch looks a certain way, but it's a practice. It's a creative practice. So the more that you do it, the more comfortable and confident you'll get at it, you know, as you keep going. Um, But just to feel access to mend our clothes, I think is, is hugely important. And for the slow fashion side of it too, I think just to feel like it's possible, just to feel hopeful, just to feel like everybody can make a change, um, regardless of, of their budget or their lifestyle or, um, their livelihood that they can make some changes to align with sustainable fashion, even if it's not an overhaul. Katrina, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. For more information on Katrina Rodaba and her book, Mending Matters, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for our last segment, What I'm Crafting-ish To. And this is a segment where I just kind of share what's been entertaining me while I've been making and, and working this week. And it is in partnership with our friends over at Penguin Random House Audio. So for TV, I have binging. I'm a late, I'm a late binger to this hilarious uh, sitcom called Schitt's Creek. It is a co-creation from Eugene Levy, whom you know from movies like, I mean, he's done a million, like American Pie and A Mighty Wind, Father of the Bride, I mean, so many um, films. But he wrote this and created this with his son, Daniel Levy, who is, I mean, I... I really want him to be my best friend. It's He's pretty amazing. So anyways, I'm really enjoying this. It's got Catherine O'Hara, who my, you know, Ovs love. And um, it's a great show to have in the background while you're working for sure. Definitely while you're sewing, which I'm doing a lot of right now. Um, and then also I was just on a retreat. And so we watched a movie as well. Um, I was on a knitting retreat and we rewatched the 1980s movie starring Miss Faye Dunaway as Miss Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest. Still just as good. The umpteenth time I've seen it so revisit that I think you can find it on um on Amazon Prime music I am listening to a band called The Bess they are out of New Zealand and they're kind of like a pop 
rock punk band kind of sometimes they're a little bit in the same bucket as like the Sundays but then they get a little bit harder like the cranberries anyways you get the gist I'm enjoying them and they're kind of helping me heal my wounds of missing out on bikini kill tickets I was gonna go to the Palladium in LA I was gonna fly out just for the show and the tickets sold out in like 90 seconds or something like that um so sad face so anyways the best are making me bop my head this week audiobook wise I am really excited to have just downloaded the Beastie Boys book speaking of man I didn't even notice until I was like actually this was coming out of my mouth but I was very much in a certain time zone um when I when I created this list um because you know uh Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kills, married to a Beastie Boy. Um, and Beastie Boys started in the early 80s, and so was Mommy Dearest, and it's just like, it's like Inception up in here. But anyways, um, the Beastie Boys book, this is uh, this is actually their story told for the first time, and they use, they're using the words of uh, the band. And so... Um, it's got like this this audiobook narrator list that looks a lot more like a celeb A list. It includes people like Steve Buscemi and Ben Stiller, Chloe Sevigny, Maya Rudolph, and LL Cool J. I mean, that's just a handful. There's so many. The list is really fun and impressive. And the audiobook claims to evoke your favorite mixtape. And so I cannot wait to listen to it. So I'll talk probably about it again in the next episode because it's like a 12-hour listen. So I'll be listening. Um, for a while but check it out if you ever listen to the Beastie Boys and I'm a child of the 80s clearly I've already said that umpteenth times and so they have been in most of my music listening life so I'm really looking forward to checking it out so you can go and download it yourself at tryaudiobooks.com it's the Beastie Boys book um, they also have a bunch of other great audiobooks or you can just nab a Penguin Random House audiobook wherever you happen to find them. All right. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend, or it would be super helpful if you would post a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. They've made it a lot easier now. You can do it from the app, which helps a lot. Craftish is a Campbell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me, Vicki Howell, and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. So if you would feel so inclined, I'd also appreciate it if you follow me on Instagram. It's just at Vicki Howell and Facebook. If you happen to be of the Nitterly type, you can also watch my live video series every week, Ask Me Monday. It is the longest running craft genre of Facebook live series. So be coolio if you would check it out. It's on at 12 Central on Mondays. All right, that's it for us today. But check your feed next Thursday again. We'll we will have a, another new episode of Crafters Podcast with my guest, author of Physical Disobedience, personal trainer and nutritionist, Sarah Hayes-Comer. She and I talk about the craft of a healthy body image. Until then, take a little time to fill that creative well. Breathe in, craft out.